Hi there, this is Valerie Francis. Leslie and I are deep into the third round of the StoryGrid Editor Certification Training right now. So this week, we thought we'd bring you a conversation that I had a little while ago with Sean about writing the sales copy for your book. Now, this is a skill all its own, and Sean has graciously taken the time to share his expertise. So grab a pen and paper because you are definitely going to want to take notes. We'll be back next week with a regular episode of the Writer's Room Podcast. Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well... The StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. I'm trying to figure out how to write this sales copy and the, you know, the back cover blurb, the thing that goes on your, on the back cover of the book and, and all that good stuff. Right. And I'm not sure if it's that I am too close to my book and I can't, I'm having trouble doing it or if it's, I just don't know how to do it at all or a mix of the two. So I'm wondering if you can point me in the right direction and give me some advice as to how to approach this? Um, <clears throat> well, you probably already know what I'm going to say. It really comes down to the target audience. And you discover the target audience based upon the, the global genre that you're writing. So what is the genre of the book? Uh, well, there's two books. One of them is fantasy. It's, one of them is middle grade fantasy. The other one is a love story. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> two separate titles. And then the, the next thing I do is I search for, and this takes a while, I search for the, the best possible uh, combination of masterworks that will appeal to a very specific target audience. Uh, so for example, for the Sand Sea, uh, it took quite a while. I initially thought Dune would be the right masterwork. And then after talking to Mike for a long time about it, Dune wasn't correct because Dune is very much, uh, it's not as broadly appealing as, say, something else. So, what was the other one? Oh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is about, <clears throat> you know, gaslight fiction, uh, you know, with supernatural powers and kind of heroes and all that kind of stuff. Intrigue, fun, mystery, lighthearted. So I initially said it was the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen meets Dune. 
And after talking to Mike and Tim about it, actually uh, talking to some people I know in Hollywood, they said, don't position this anywhere near the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen because the, uh, the sales of that kind of story don't work in terms of Hollywood you know, movies. So the movie bombed. So don't use that as your, no matter how good it is. So that threw out the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And then Mike threw out Dune because he didn't think it was applicable to his story. So then it got to, well, I don't know about Game of Thrones. I mean, everybody says Game of Thrones. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia. And everybody also says it's like the Lord of the Rings. Shit, what are we going to do? And then at some point, uh, I was talking to Shelly and Leslie about it. And I mentioned, I was like, well, it's kind of like these, this expedition, kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then I was, then that nailed it because Raiders of the Lost Ark has a much more wider appeal than Dune or the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And it's a mimetic um, trigger point culturally for for a very, very wide net of audience. So baby boomer, boomers, uh, you know, we remember seeing it, or I remember seeing it in the theater when I was a kid. And then kids today still see it on, so it still has that kind of resonance. So then uh, we had to let people know this was a fantasy novel about clashes of civilizations. So Lord of the Rings, was far more magical, especially at the beginning, than Mike's book. Now, Mike's book does, the, trini- uh, the trilogy does get into high magic later on in the second and third books, but at the beginning, you've got to establish the world in a way that is as embracing of the largest part of a reading public as you possibly can imagine. So Game of Thrones was was a natural because it was about clashes of civilizations. It was about culture clashes uh, as well as high magic stuff. So that's how we arrived at Raiders of the Lost Ark playing, which I loved. A lot of people kind of, not a lot, but some people didn't quite get what I was going for when I said playing, but it makes sense now. So the Raiders are playing a, a Game of Thrones. So that was a means by which you could have a single sentence encapsulate a 260,000 words epic fantasy fiction novel with four primary protagonists. (laughs) Uh, And it took a long time. I mean, I started writing the, the sales copy, say in March, and we didn't really nail it until we did our launch of the free ebook. Literally, like up to the last minute, I was still tweaking the copy. So there's a real art to copy, and the fact that it's you're finding it difficult is just that's a good sign because you're you understand how important it is. So once you have that sort of high concept angle that will immediately trigger associations for your target audience 
then you can get into the specificity of the story. So, and you'll notice like people who have read The Sand Sea, they, uh, they, they're like, I didn't know this was an alternate history. And it's the very first line of the fucking sales copy, <laughs> right? So it's really, you can sweat and bust your ass on these, on, on the like the 200 words of sales copy. But the really, really critical point is that that high concept mimetic idea that will attract um, people to the story. There's the concept of something called the strange attractor in systems, complex systems theory. And it's pretty cool when you think about it. So basically what the strange attractor is, is something that's novel and unique but not that novel and unique, right? So I used to, uh, and I still refer to this concept as uniquely familiar. So what you wanna do is find something uniquely familiar in your story that will accurately describe um, a novel approach to something that the reader has already experienced. So Seth Godin talks about giving your audience a hook to hang the idea on. And that's about the same, it's the same type of concept, right? Exactly. But I think mine's more specific because it's talking about um, <clears throat> what is unique and novel and strange about your specific uh, story within its framed genre, right? Okay. So if you think of genre as a bunch of buckets of different kinds of, um, you know, I have this new concept that I'm, I've been tooling around with called sort of like the video game version of the world. So uh, video games are really, really, they're basically built to uh, hijack your, your cognitive operating system. <clears throat> and so the, the way they do that is they simulate the flow state. So the different varieties of video games are different means by which uh, the storyteller slash video game creator can hijack specific uh, archetypical vulnerabilities within the individual. So you have like Fortnite, which is about um, you know, it's a life and death game. All of all of video games are life and death. So um, the strange attractor is the concepts around a specific video game. So the reason why Fortnite worked so well was because it was multi multiplayer, a very confined environment a clear beginning, middle, and end, and all kinds of levels, right? So when we're writing a story, genre is our kind of video game that we're kind of trying to hijack people's cognitive framework. So you need to figure out what makes your video game different than Fortnite in order to allure the ecosystem of Fortnite players to leave that world and come to your world. 
So if you think of your novel as a strange attractor that is trying to magnetize the audience of people who love your specific kind of genre to come over, to trans, you know, to literally move across a terrain to try out your world, you've got to uh, use things that they are familiar with as well as combine it with something unique and fresh so that they're like, hey, wow, that sounds cool. Let me try that. But if you just write another book that says, it's just like The Hunger Games, and people are associating your book as another version of The Hunger Games, then uh, you're, you're only going to get a fraction of The Hunger Games audience to come enjoy your story. But if you can say it's The Hunger Games meets uh, the Matrix, then hopefully that's enough of a strange attractor to get all of the people who love uh, Hunger Games and all of the people who love The Matrix to give your thing a try. Okay, that makes um, sense. Right. But it's got to be accurate. So you can't false advertise or your reviewers will start giving you shit. And well, say, and rightfully so. Yeah, yeah. So the key, the key to sales copy for me, it's, it's a discovery process that you can attack from any number of, of vantage points. So before I even came up with that high concept thing, and I was actually resisting coming up with Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, playing a Game of Thrones, <clears throat> because we start to associate those kinds of sales uh, memetics as cheesy. But they're not when they're good. Uh, it's like anything else. So high concept pitches to movies like, you know, what you've heard them a million times before. So while I would have loved to have come up with something that would have intrigued people based upon my argument in the body copy of sales copy, the, the bottom line that I finally came back around to was you've got five words, you got 10 words and not to put too much pressure on you, but that's, <laughs> that's the trick you know <clears throat> and yes that's not that's not make or break because like how do you how do you describe a confederacy of dunces you know it's sort of like well it's kind of like this mixed with this but it's its own thing right but a confederacy of dunces took a long time to reach its 10,000 readers before it became memetically passed on from person to person. So you're trying to find a balance where you can reach those 10,000 people as soon as possible. And that's the trick of sales copy. The better the sales copy, the more probability that you're going to be able to attract the 10,000 readers that you're gonna need to determine whether or not the book is gonna work or not, um, commercially that is. Um, so, that's how I approach sales copy is it's all about genre. It's all about coming up with a strange attractor that is uniquely familiar. So I'm hearing 
I'm hearing you repeat things you've said before, but now applying them in a different manner. For example, many, many times you've talked about reading widely and deeply. So yeah. certainly deeply within the genre that you're writing in, but widely as well so that you understand uh, how other stories are working, how other genres are working. And so you can innovate some of your scenes. So that's when you're actually sitting down to write the book. But here, if you take the same information that you're gathering from reading widely and deeply and applying it to sales copy, it allows you to be able to figure out which two other books is my book like. So it's this meets that. Yep. Right? Yep. I'm also hearing you talk about working from the macro to the micro, which you talk about all the time when you're talking about the actual craft of writing. But here, coming up with the statement of, you know, X meets Y, that's a macro 30,000 yep. foot view of your story. And then as you begin to flesh out the blurb, you know, the, the, the little paragraph of text you write on the back of your book or in the, your Amazon profile for your book, this is now working more toward the micro, correct? Yeah, you wanna, you wanna give the context of the global story in as few words as possible. I mean, now reflecting upon the, the copy I wrote for The Threshing, I, I, you know, I wanna go back to it and make it more clear, The Matrix meets The Hunger Games for middle grade or whatever the hell they categorize. Uh, his, that's the other problem with the threshing is that it's it's a hybrid um, target audience. So it's sort of, I guess it, would, it wouldn't be middle grade, right? Because isn't middle grade like 13-year-olds who want to read about 17-year-olds? Yeah, sort of 9 to 12. So the okay. grades, grades 5, 6, 7 in there. So I guess it is middle grade because she's, she's 12, but she acts like a 16-year-old. Um, but you know, we, we did contemplate making her 16, but then we didn't want to get into sexual, uh, politics or genre classifications in this thing because it's an action story. So anyway, I mean, I don't want to. Right. I did the same thing in mine. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's a difficult, um, it's a difficult terrain when you're, you're trying to abide by conventions, the marketing conventions, as opposed to story conventions. So story conventions, really, the age of the character is almost not that important. And, but the way, uh, the way the 10,000 readers are reached these days is through, especially in middle grade, is through librarians, Mm -hmm. And through, uh, you know, so the librarians have a lot of power and the English teachers in the institutions have a lot of power because once they sign off on the book, then it's widely read. Uh, they assign it, right? So right. if you fuck with the librarian's definition of the genre, you do so at your peril because like some librarian read Tim's book because he sent it to her and she's like, well, 
this is good, but here's why it won't work. And there were all these arbitrary things about, you know, mi what middle grade is to a librarian as opposed to what middle grade is to an actual, like a middle grade reader could give a shit about what a librarian thinks is middle grade. You still got to get past that threshold guardian though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And that's what JK Rowling did so, so well was that she basically just operated under uh, being a storyteller and just being completely oblivious to that bullshit that kids won't read anything longer than a hundred pages. And so she broke every fucking rule because she wasn't aware of the rules and she had a courageous editor who was like, you know what, this probably isn't going to work, but what's the worst that's going to happen? We lose 10 grand, you know? So that's the beauty of book publishing, by the way, is that you can make so many, you can take so many shots and so many experiments without getting the thermonuclear wipeout of your movie studio because you made a mistake, you know, green lighting the league of extraordinary gentlemen and you lost 170 million dollars <laughs> <clears throat> so then if if my hypothesis is correct that we're working from macro to micro when we go to write that paragraph for the back cover would you do you focus on the five commandments then and maybe leave it as a cliffhanger how this is this is one of the places that i struggle because as the writer writing the oh your own sales copy or the your own um, back cover blurb, you know so much about your story that it, you lose perspective on it, right? You're too close to it. Yeah. Now both of the books that I'm working on now have been done and put away for a while. They've been out for a while, so I'm now revisiting right. these types of things. So I've gained a little bit of perspective on it, which is great. How do you approach that? back cover text uh i always <clears throat> i don't i don't um formally approach it until i have to so <laughs> if if i had to categorize the way i end up where i end up i would say it's probably the crisis the global crisis that is uh that ru that rules the day so for the threshing the global crisis is starvation if you if you win you don't starve so it really boiled down the whole story to um power and life and death so for a middle grade fantasy novel you want to boil it down to uh, whether or not, I, I would suspect, depends, but whether or not your hero or heroine actually takes up the call. You could focus yeah. on the call. Will she go to Oz? Like Dorothy didn't have a choice. But will Bilbo go on this adventure? Now, that probably wouldn't work as copy for The Hobbit because it's almost a fait accompli because The Hobbit is written as 
sort of allegorical, fun bedtime story at the beginning. Um, <clears throat> and so in a bedtime story, we kind of accept the conventions of the bedtime story, which was, hey, we need something to get the pot going. There's this guy who lives in this hole. This wizard comes and he says, hey, you want to go on an adventure? And he says, no way. I don't, I'm not the sort that goes on adventures. But we know the guy's going on the adventure. So for Bilbo, it's, it's about facing <clears throat> the unknown and the darkness and having the courage to do so. So for a, a fantasy story, uh, the traditional fantasy story that, that uh, maps onto the heroic journey, you want to focus on the, the terror of facing uncertainty and unknown. And then you want to sort of let the reader know just how motherfucking scary this, this place is. So will they go into this dark pit and, and fall into the abyss in order to protect someone else's agency? Or will they not do that and suffer the consequences? Um, that kind of makes people, because we all face these very, very large moments in our lives when we're like, I don't think I should quit this job even though it's killing me. Because if I quit my job, who knows what's going to happen to me? I could end up in the gutter, right? And so we don't quit the job, but that doesn't mean we don't want to read about people who did quit the job. In fact, that's what we're going to be attracted to, that strange attractor psychologically. This is why we're drawn to certain genres. Um, I grew up in a very, very unsafe environment. And I, that's why I love thrillers because they remind me of just how awesome it was that I got out of that situation. And it also reminds me that my life is meaningful because I was able to do that. People are also attracted to thrillers in case if they find themselves agent less like agency deprived. So that way they can sort of raise their courage. So focusing on Maslow's hierarchy of need in, in, in the prism of the crisis of your global story might be helpful because then they're like, Oh, this story is for me. Um, in terms of love story, um, you know, there's a lot of great tropes to use. You know, poor, poor girl marries rich guy. Poor boy marries rich woman. Um, two people who aren't supposed to fall in love fall in love. Um, how are they going to keep their secret? Uh, that kind of stuff. Because everyone, in terms of love, they project... Um, this unique situation. We all, all of our own personal love stories are remarkably specific and so compelling 
<clears throat> that when we're able to put them onto successfully put them into a, a distilled story, everyone attaches to them because we've all experienced those emotions. So in love story, you really want to target the, the differences between the two or the unlikelihood of these two people falling in love. So uncertainty and uh, cultural uh, barrier. So you want to make the promise that there's a lot of fucking obstacles ahead for these characters. And you don't want to give away that, they, of course, they overcame all of them or I wouldn't have written a story. You just <laughs> want to set up all of the obstacles that the reader might glom onto as personalized for them. All right. And the other thing, too, is it isn't a one and done. You write these things a few times. You can test them out. You can always change them again in the future if yes. they're not working for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is a, uh, an opportunity that not many people take advantage of. Um, you know, just the publishers, they, I mean, I used to, I used to repackage old stuff and what we would end up doing is just sort of putting a new cover on it and not really fucking all that much with the back cover copy. Or we would make it so generic that it was just like another in the long tradition of Elmore Leonard's great classic crime thrillers <laughs> comes, you know, Maximum Bob. And that, that just ends up sounding like stupid, right? So, yeah, this is, uh, you know, as a thought experiment, I could, I could think of a million ways to to do what you just suggested and make it extraordinarily profitable. Like for example, say I was a hedge fund guy and I had to somehow buy some fucking company because I needed to increase my return on investment and, you know, putting a billion dollars into municipal bonds would actually lose me money. So this is what people forget about hedge funds is that they're desperately trying to find investment vehicles that would work and return higher at higher rates than terrible, you know, conservative investments because they're not even investments anymore. They're divestments. Anyway, what you could do is there are these big intellectual property um, holding companies and they're called publishers. <laughs> so, if I had a billion bucks, I'd go and I would buy Simon Schuster from Viacom right now, who doesn't give a shit about Simon Schuster and wants to sell it. And I would probably end up paying 40 cents on what it's actually worth, 40 cents on the dollar. So it would probably cost about a billion dollars to buy Simon Schuster when it's worth about $1.7 billion if, if you really do the math. And then then what I would do is I would fire all the editors and I would fire the entire front list. <laughs> so there would be no more Simon & Schuster, no more original Simon & Schuster books to ever come out ever again. And instead what I would do is I, I would hire, you know, not hire as employees, but hire as consultants, brilliant uh, sales pitch people 
who would do the process by which what we're talking about right now, and we would pick out all of the titles that we could re rejacket, rethink, remarket, re blah blah blah, and release those titles as if they were brand new. And that would be uh, extraordinarily profitable because there would be uh, you would be working on projects that had already proven themselves to be working, but you would be able to expand their audience through some, you know, pretty fundamental and primary online marketing techniques that have evolved exponentially over the last 10 years in ways that are, are shocking. But as a thought experiment, that idea that you just had to keep refreshing your material and experiment, experimenting with the sales copy is absolutely on the money and and you know it's something that we would do at story grid in the future if we ever had time <laughs> thank you so much sean i really appreciate it and that wraps it up for this week remember if you want to become a better writer you've got to write and you've got to read why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work? To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. And if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the UnPodcast at ValerieFrancis.ca slash innercircle or writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit storygrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.